section nine of social life in england seventeen fifty to eighteen fifty by f j folks jackson this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami lecture three margaret catchpole part two this brings us to the tragedy margaret has heard that laud is alive from an old servant of the cobbles she longs for an explanation and is determined to see him instead of consulting any of her reputable friends she goes to ipswich and is persuaded that laud is in london waiting for her there even a letter from him is produced expressing his readiness to marry her if she would join him this clumsy fraud was devised by a man named cook in order to induce margaret whose fame as a writer was known to him to steal a horse from mr cobbold and to ride him up to london regardless of the consequences margaret took her old master's best horse named rochford and rode him to london seventy miles in eight hours of course the loss of the horse was known at once and handbills were issued offering a reward margaret dressed as a groom was arrested soon after her arrival in london and sent back to ipswich to be tried at the assizes on august ninth seventeen ninety seven she pleaded guilty at bury st edmunds and was condemned to death her crime was then considered a most serious one but she made a very favourable impression and the witnesses for character gave such good testimony that the judge commuted the death sentence to one of transportation for seven years for three years margaret remained in ipswich jail and it is probable that her sentence would have been remitted altogether but for what ensued laud was now smuggling on a large scale he was deeply concerned with an affair in which two preventive men were beaten and thrown into the sea at southwold for reporting that they had seen forty carts and horses ready to take a cargo which was to be run near dunwich a reward of a hundred pounds for his apprehension was offered in the newspapers on march second seventeen ninety nine shortly after this eight hundred and eighty gallons of gin were seized and the guilt of smuggling it brought home to laud all his property was confiscated and he was given a year's imprisonment and sentenced to pay one hundred pounds he was committed to ipswich jail and would have to stay there after his sentence had expired till the fine was paid of course margaret whose good conduct had made her practically free of the prison discovered that her lover was an inmate and as she had kept intact the prize money he had given her she was able to give him the means of obtaining his liberation at the end of his year's imprisonment laud persuaded her to try to escape and join him and the way she did this is one of the most extraordinary in her romantic career the wall of the prison was twenty-five feet high and protected at the top with iron spikes margaret succeeded in getting a flower-stand which placed endways raised her to within thirteen feet of the top she had made herself a garment like a shepherd's smock and a pair of trousers so as to be unencumbered in her movements by casting a clothes-line over the chevaux de frise on the top of the wall she managed to climb up to the iron spikes then lowering the line on the other side she turned over between the revolving spikes and let herself down on the opposite side she and laud made for a place called sudbourne 
but were overtaken on the beach where after a desperate fight laud was killed by edward barry and margaret arrested and taken back to jail it was one of the strange anomalies of the cruel law of that age that whereas ruffians like cook and desperados like laud escaped the capital sentence comparatively innocent persons were hanged without mercy for a reprieved person to escape from prison was death and though margaret was ignorant of the terrible penalty which she had incurred there seemed no hope of her meeting with any further leniency she was again brought before the same judge lord chief baron sir archibald macdonald who had condemned her in august seventeen ninety seven on the third day of the same month in eighteen hundred again she pleaded guilty and when the judge condemned her in very stern language she made a short speech accepting his sentence which impressed every one present in the courthouse her eloquence and her whole demeanour profoundly impressed the judge and again he obtained power to respite her sentencing her this time to lifelong transportation throughout her trials margaret found in mrs cobbold a constant friend one who never allowed her for a moment to feel forsaken the letters which passed between her and her former mistress are preserved and on reading them one cannot but fail to note how in style and diction the maid had been influenced by mrs cobbold margaret continued to write from australia and her letters are marvellous when one considers her antecedents and lack of early education she collected specimens to send to her mistress some of which were presented to the ipswich museum once more she was able to save life by an act of desperate daring from which the men shrank at the time of a flood at last according to the story john barry quote unquote, who had prospered in the colony found that she was there sought her out and married her the last letter published in the book is dated june twenty fifth eighteen twelve and announces her marriage to john barry it contains these words should you ever think fit as you once hinted in your letter to me to write my history or to leave it to others to publish you have my free permission at my decease whenever that shall take place to do so but let my husband's name be concealed change it change it to any other for mine and my children's sake she died september tenth eighteen forty one in the sixty-eighth year of her age the book raises problems of exceptional literary interest in the first place it was written by a man of unimpeachable character who wrote with a distinctly religious aim in view mainly to show that the heroine after having violated the laws of god and man became by the inculcation of christian faith and virtue conspicuous for the sincerity of her reformation he avers that his narrative is strictly true and based on facts well known to many persons of the highest respectability still living and that he himself received the letters he quotes he has no motive for deviating from his intention to tell the truth except that as we have seen margaret catchpole desired her married name to be concealed that the author studiously carried out this natural wish is proved by the fact that a wealthy lady in new south wales named mrs reby who had left bury in lancashire as a girl was declared to be the true margaret catchpole to her great annoyance 
as she naturally had no desire to figure as a convict heroine. In 1910, the story of Margaret was dramatized in London, enacted by the late Mr. Lawrence Irving and his wife. A correspondent thereupon appeared in the East Anglian Daily Times, in which it was hinted that Mrs. Reby, a Staffordshire girl, was transported in 1791 for the same offence of horse-stealing. No one can read the book without perceiving that all the conversations are fictitious. Mr. Cobbold was no Shakespeare, and he makes all his characters talk in the same style as, if report be true, he conversed himself. The whole of the Berry incidents may be fictitious, for if the details given were true, everybody in Suffolk must have known who Margaret's husband was. The father of Edmund and John, quote-unquote, Berry, was the discoverer of cragshells as manure, and was a farmer and miller at Levington Hill, the next parish to Nacton. But even then the author may have used pardonable license. Still, the last letter of Margaret's, which the author declares he received from his mother, cannot be genuine. It is signed Margaret Berry, and it says expressly that she was married to the man who had loved her fruitlessly when the family lived at Nacton. In point of fact, Margaret never married. Had the book been a document written many centuries ago, there would be suggested grave doubts whether such a woman ever existed. As it is, the Cobbold family have lived in Ipswich in unbroken succession during the past century, and documents like the original jail delivery in 1797, and the exemption of Mr. Cobbold from any parish offices for arresting the culprit, prove beyond doubt the existence of Margaret Catchpole. As, however, the subject of these lectures is English social life, I shall now give some extracts from the book before me, and from Crabbe's biography, to show how the peasantry lived in the late 18th and early 19th century. Even to this day, if you enter a harvest field in Suffolk at reaping time, you will hear the old Norman-French demand for largesse, and you will be expected to give it. Mr. Cobbold gives in his book a description of a harvest home, many features of which are still remembered. The farmer lodged all the single men in his house, but the married men, known as hinds, lived in the neighboring cottages. When the last sheaf of corn was conveyed to the stackyard, the barn was covered with green leaves, and the sheaf brought in with shouting and blowing of the harvest horn. The farmer then gave an ample supper to the laborers, and he, his wife, and his daughters waited on their guests. The headman of the harvest field acted as lord of the feast. The chief song was called Hallo Largess, and was in honor of the division of the largesse obtained in harvest time among the reapers. Here is a verse of the song quoted by our author. Now the ripening corn in the sheaves is born, and the loaded wain bring home the grain. The merry, merry reapers sing, and jocund shouts the happy harvest hind, Hallo large, hallo large, hallo largesse. At evening, when the work of the day is over, to quote from Margaret Catchpole, all the men collect in a circle and hallo, that is cry, largesse. Three times they say in a low tone, hallo large, hello large, hello large, and all hand in hand bow their heads almost to the ground, but after the third monotonous yet sonorous junction they lift up their heads and with one burst of their voices cry out, Jess, 
i cannot help wondering whether this semi-barbarous custom which prevailed in suffolk survive in those marvellous yells in which the exuberant spirits of youth in the highly civilized universities of america now find a vent allusion has been made to the superstition of the east anglian peasantry and a most interesting example is given in thomas colson better known in ipswich as robinson crusoe the fisherman on the orwell he had built a boat for himself of the strangest materials and was constantly at work on the river his skill was wonderful and he is described as a perfect fisherman quiet steady active and thoughtful in character he was singularly benevolent never refusing to help any one in distress to quote mr cobbold the writer of these pages knew colson well he as often as a boy been in a boat with him and always found him kind and gentle the old man's mania was probably only an exaggeration of the belief of his time or at any rate of his youth he was a firm believer in wizards and witchcraft he fancied himself surrounded by evil spirits he knew their names their propensities how they afflicted men and his great study was to prevent their malign influence his trust in charms was absolute and his whole body was hung with amulets rings bones of horses verses etc each of which he declared to be efficacious against a certain spirit if he lost one of his many charms he believed himself specially liable to attack by the demon against whom it was a prophylactic that he had learned much from folklore is evident from the fact that though often questioned about the different demons who tormented him he never deviated from his ordinary account of them and no one ever found him tripping as to their names or attributes though subject to hallucinations he must have learned his demonology somewhere and there seems to me little doubt that among the less educated folk in east anglia there was down to the end of the eighteenth century a belief and a knowledge of the different powers of evil little different from that of the middle ages or the days when witchcraft was dreaded by all the inhabitants of england of every class the primitive character of rural life at a comparatively late period is seen in the admirable description of mr tovell's house in the life of the poet crabbe written by his son which fully attests the accuracy of his younger contemporary mr cobbold mr tovell whose property mrs crabbe inherited was a yeoman farmer possessed of a very considerable freehold property whose income eight hundred pounds four thousand dollars for those days was considerable a landowner of such comparative wealth in the eighteenth century might well aspire to a place among the gentry of the country but mr tovell possessed a sturdy independence which forbade him taking any position in which he might feel himself ill at ease a yeoman he was by education and such he was determined to remain jack he said will never make a gentleman nevertheless says mr crabbe he possessed a native dignity of his own the following is a description of his and his worthy wife's menage at parham i quote someone at length his house was large and the surrounding moat the rookery the ancient dovecote and the well-stored fish-ponds were such as might have suited a gentleman's seat of some consequence but one side of the house immediately overlooked the farmyard full of all sorts of domestic animals and the scene of constant bustle and noise on entering the house 
there was nothing at first sight to remind one of the farm a spacious hall paved with black and white marble etc etc but the drawing-room a corresponding dining parlour and a handsome sleeping apartment upstairs were all tabooed ground and made use of on great and solemn occasions only such as rent days and an occasional visit with which mr tovel was honoured by a neighbouring peer at all other times the family and their visitors lived entirely in the old-fashioned kitchen along with the servants my great-uncle occupied an armchair and mrs tovel sat at a small table on which in the evening stood one small candle in an iron candlestick in winter a noble block of wood sometimes the whole circumference of a pollard threw its comfortable warmth and cheerful blaze over the whole apartment at a very early hour in the morning the alarm called the maids and their mistress also after the important business of the dairy and a hasty breakfast their respective employments were again resumed that which the mistress took for her especial privilege being the scrubbing of the floors of the state apartments once a new servant was found doing this and thus spoke the good lady you wash such floors as these give me the brush this instant and troop to the scullery and wash that madam as true as god's in heaven here comes lord rochford to call on mr tovel here take my mantle a blue woollen apron and i'll go to the door the family dined together the heads sat at the old kitchen table the maids at a side table called a booter the farm men stood in the scullery with the principals at the table any stranger who happened to come in dined even if he was a travelling rat-catcher tinker or farrier my father mr crabbe goes on to say well describes in the widow's tale my mother's situation when living in her younger days at parham but when the men beside their stations took the maidens with them and with these the cook when one huge wooden bowl before them stood filled with huge balls of farinaceous food with bacon mass saline were never lean beneath the brown and bristly rind was seen when from a single horn the party drew their copious draughts of heavy ale anew when the coarse cloth she said with many a stain soiled by rude hands who cut and came again she could not breathe but with a heavy sigh reined the fair neck and shut the offended eye she minced the sanguine flesh in pastimes fine and wondered much to see the creatures dine then mr crabbe goes on to describe mr tovel's cronies who came after dinner and enjoyed their punch prosperous farmers or wealthy yeomen like himself their talk was at times too much for mrs tovel who withdrew but the servants being considered much in the same point of view as the animals dozing on the hearth remained the life of crabbe the poet as told by his son is an admirable piece of biography and the reverend george crabbe junior was to my mind at least as good a realist in prose as his father in poetry i wonder if i am right in conjecturing that you in new england had at the same time old farmers not very unlike mr tovel who lived in prosperous simplicity like the old suffolk yeoman rough in manner coarse in expression and blunt in sensibility yet with an honest independence of character which redeemed much which in our eyes may seem repulsive but the object of my remarks in this lecture has been to endeavour to give you 
an idea of what england or part of it was like about eighteen hundred because i have another side of the picture to show in my next lecture the primitive simplicity of the peasant and the farmer was doomed to disappear and the process had already begun still side by side with a luxurious civilization there were many traces of a roughness belonging to an early period in human development to bring these facts into light i do not think that the choice of my native county of suffolk is a bad one when we turn from the peasant and trader who in those days had little influence in controlling the country to the classes which exercised power in the land we come as it were to the surface of things but to use an agricultural metaphor we cannot explain the crop without some knowledge of the soil the explanation of many things strange now to us in the most highly polished social circles can be found in the character of the middle and lower classes of the time when we come in my next lecture to deal with academic life we shall find men of the highest intellect marked by much of the uncouthness of the people described by crabbe or cobbled for many scholars had passed their early days in the same surroundings and when we go a step higher and associate with the wits dandies and politicians of the regency i think we shall acknowledge that only a very thin crust of superficial polish lay between them and the people whom they affected to despise but this similarity does not merely extend to the faults of society it is to be found in its virtues also there is no lack of virile strength in the characters to which i have drawn your attention to-day their good qualities are as marked as their defects and we recognize in nearly every one of them qualities which brought england safe through a great crisis in its history End of section nine.